wonderful time to be able to be part of this and to hear about the prelude to the birth of Jesus Christ and his coming into the world. Uh, as we come to Luke chapter 1, we will be looking once again at the, uh, the end of the chapter starting in verse 57 through verse 80, which has to do with the birth of John or the man who we later come to know as John the Baptist. So Luke chapter 1. If you would turn there and follow along as I read, we'll begin reading in verse 57, and we will read through verse 80 and look at the second half of this this morning. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Verse 66, he says that all who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? A question that these people would ask based upon the miraculous circumstances surrounding the birth of this particular child. You hear stories from time to time about people who seem destined for greatness even from their birth. The former pro athlete, the star who uh, was carrying around the ball from the time that he was in the crib, the musician who was singing and composing from before the time that they could even read words on a page. These kind of precocious young people who uh, after they make it big, we learn about all of the things that happened when they were young that would have indicated to us that perhaps greatness was in their future. Of course, we don't necessarily hear about all the people who seem to have greatness in their future but never panned out. This is because we only hear about the stories of the ones who did. And uh, 
in these cases, it's wise for us, of course, to consider that we don't really always know what's going to happen when someone grows up. That it's really hard to predict what someone will be when they are older, even when they seem to show early signs that they might be really good at something. John's case, however, was quite a bit different because this wasn't people simply following John around and saying, you know, that John, he sure got a gift for prophesying, doesn't he? Or that John, you know, I saw him taking his little cousin and taking him out to the river and dunking him in the river to uh, practice his baptism. And I knew that from a young age, this man was going to be a baptizer and many people would come out to him to be baptized in the Jordan. There's nothing like that about John that indicates what his future is going to be, but there are many signs about what his future is going to be, which were obvious not only to his parents who had been directly told about this, or to Mary who had gone to visit the mother of this prophet, this forerunner of the Lord, uh, but to all the people around them based upon the events that took place when John was born and shortly after John was born. We looked at this last week where we saw that there were some amazing things that took place surrounding the birth of John, that there was a uniqueness to his birth. Uh, It was merciful toward a barren mother, we learned, that Elizabeth, she had been barren for quite some time, and she was old. She was past childbearing years in, in natural terms, and yet she was given a son. God was gracious to her. Uh, this, this child, John, was, uh, his, the uniqueness of his birth was signified by a special name, a name that was not in his family lineage, a name that was not expected to be given by the people who attended to his birth or to the ceremonial naming and the circumcision that took place some eight days after his birth. They were surprised to hear that he would be called this, and yet it was affirmed by not only his mother, but also by his father who wrote this on the tablet in verse 63, saying, his name is John. It was also unique in that it was followed by uh, his father being enabled to speak miraculously. He was unmuted after nine months plus of being unable to speak or to hear based upon the consequences for not believing God's promise to him through the angel Gabriel. John, uh, John's father, Zacharias, was enabled to speak. And verse 64 says that once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. And then John's birth was shown to be very special by the witnesses that were around them. They were astonished, it says in verse 60, uh, 63. And then all the people around them, verse 65, fear came on all those. And it wasn't just a few, all those living around them. All these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. This was something that the word was spreading about. Something was special about this child. And they might not necessarily know what it was, but they knew that there was something about him. And it caused them to ask the question, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Well, as if it wasn't enough for all of these things to surround his birth, God then interprets the situation for us and for anyone who would hear what his father had to say through the prophecy that then took place. As his father Zacharias, verse 67, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And John not only is born, but he has some comments made about what God is doing through him and what God is doing that is signified by John's existence in the world and his role in the world in the first place. Uh, We might even put it this way, that God is doing a number of different things in the birth of John. In verses 57 through 66, largely what he's doing is being merciful toward his mother And he is bringing John into the world for some purpose that he's going to clarify later. But then 
uh, in verse 67 through the end of the chapter that we're going to finish looking at this morning. What he's doing is he's actually indicating the grand significance of what God is doing in the world and what John's birth indicates about God's purposes and about where we stand in the plan of God's purposes being carried out and executed in the world. Um, And he does so in two parts, uh, talking about, well, really three parts here, but uh, in verses 68 through 80, we learn about not only what we looked at last time, the uniqueness of John's birth, but also the significance of John's birth. The significance, what does it mean that John was born? What do all of these things mean? And what is John going to turn out to be? Uh, And we began to look at the first part of this, which is the broad scale national significance of John's birth for his people, Israel. It has to do with the redemption of Israel. The redemption of Israel, as he says in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Here in verses 68, through 75. Uh, He speaks in terms that will be familiar to you if you read uh, much in the Old Testament, in particular the Psalms, where it speaks in this sort of uh, already done past tense about the things that may not all have yet taken place, but are certain to take place because of God's promise. And the things that he says through here are things that have begun to be kicked in through John's birth and through his coming into the world, but still have a lot of realization actually left to take place. But nonetheless, John being born and what he signifies in terms of coming before Jesus means these things are certain and God will do them and they are so certain as to say that he has done them. This is what God has done. He has visited Israel. So the redemption of Israel takes place uh, in a number of different, with a number of different components. Uh, we'll review the first few and then look at the rest that we were not able to get to last time. Uh, the redemption of Israel takes place by means of God's visitation. Verse 68, he has visited us. God has drawn near. It's not that God was ever uh, distant in an ontological sense. God cannot be anywhere except for everywhere all of the time. He makes his particular presence known and uh, in heaven, but he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But to say that God is near or that he visited has a particular significance where it says that he is coming to his people and he is doing something for them. He is aware. He is not far off in terms of being able to do anything, but he comes and he brings either in some cases judgment or in this case benefits. He is visiting Israel and accomplishing redemption for them. Uh, This redemption of Israel takes place also through the horn from David's house, verse 69. Through the horn from David's house, this horn of salvation for us, where he raises up someone, a descendant of the promised dynasty of King David, who had reigned a thousand years earlier, who had been given a promise of a son who would sit on his throne and would carry out this permanent dynasty for Israel. For a time, this promise has been interrupted because of Israel's unfaithfulness and there was no one sitting on David's throne as the Old Testament predicted for a long time and yet here now God is bringing this horn from the house of David this powerful person to bring salvation and to rescue Israel through this strong ruler who had come out of the house of David verse 70 tells us that the redemption of Israel takes place in accordance with divine prophecy 
Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This is not something that is surprising that it would take place. The only surprise is actually exactly when it is going to take place and the name of the servants through whom it would take place, Zacharias and John, and even someone named Jesus that would come later on. These things are connecting dots of what has already been promised long ago in the Old Testament. Verse 71 tells us the redemption of Israel is something that involves physical rescue. Physical rescue. It says salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. There is a fundamental component of salvation, which we'll see here a little bit later this morning, which involves dealing with our sins that we need to be saved from. But there is also, according to God's promises to this particular nation, there is a promise of physical deliverance from those who oppose them. From, he says, the hand of our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Israel had enemies, some that they had brought upon themselves by their own ungodliness. Others who simply came against them because they didn't like them or because they were in their way of world conquest. Still others that were motivated as well by hostility toward Israel's God. Whatever the reason is altogether, God is going to deal with all of those things, taking away Israel's rebellion, which would provoke opposition needlessly, taking away Israel's inability to defend itself and ultimately taking away the opponent's ability to come against them. This is what God promises in the Old Testament. This is what he will make good on. Well, we resume then in verses 72 and 73 in talking about the redemption of Israel. And we find that this is something that is uh, his way of fulfilling his oath to Abraham. Fulfilling God's oath to Abraham. And we pick up in verse 72 where he says these words, To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He has visited us, verse 68, and he has done so in order to show mercy toward our fathers. And this is an interesting statement in and of itself because these fathers at this point are long dead. The fathers, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and perhaps those who came later on, but at least including these, and yet they're not the ones who are directly receiving the benefit of this blessing. But to show mercy toward the fathers means not only what Jesus pointed out, which is that God being the God of the living, not of the dead, and therefore one day promising to resurrect these fathers to their reward. Not only is it that way that he shows mercy toward their fathers, but to show mercy toward them means that he is going to make good on his promises to them about what he would do for his descendants. God does not do good to this nation of Israel at this time because of anything in them. It's not because of something good about them. It's not because they're a special nation or a smart nation or a skilled nation or any other such thing. The reason why he brings these blessings upon them and why he is coming to visit them is because he made some promises a long time ago and God doesn't break his promises. So his intention is to show mercy toward Israel's fathers. That is the goal. He is going to do that out of his mercy, his grace, and his faithfulness. There is a a passage in the book of Deuteronomy that illustrates this. In verses, uh, starting in verse 7 of chapter 7, he says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. God's promise to Israel's forefathers, to the patriarchs, has never been in question as to whether it will ultimately be fulfilled. The question is whether or not any particular person or generation actually gets to partake of the benefits of God fulfilling those promises. And so you have groups throughout the course of Israel's history who would be against God and who would suffer the consequences that Deuteronomy 7 talks about. But then you have those who, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, are the beneficiaries of his blessing and will one day rise, as Jesus will talk about often in this book, uh, one, one day be raised to receive their reward and the fulfillment of all of these promises that God will make good on. Luke speaks about this then in verse 72 as the purpose of showing mercy toward our fathers. And uh, in basic parallel to this, he says, and to remember his holy covenant. To remember his holy covenant. Now, we could come up with our own ideas about what is meant here by his holy covenant, but we don't actually have to do that because he says which covenant he is talking about here in the very next verse, verse 73. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. He says to remember his holy covenant, namely the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. The progress of this was that God told Abraham to leave his land and go to a land he would show him, the promised land, Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, God made this covenant promise. He cut a covenant. He walked through the pieces with Abraham asleep, signifying that this was a unilateral covenant God was making. It involved Abraham, but God was assuming the responsibility to bring this about on his own, not somebody where each party was responsible to make sure that these terms were met. And then he gave the sign of circumcision in verse 17, or uh, Genesis 17, which is connected to what we looked at last week. But then uh, Abraham was told in Genesis 22 to go sacrifice his son. He was tested. He was told, uh, you need to go do this. And Abraham went and was willing to obey God. We read in the book of Hebrews that Abraham figured that Isaac would be raised from the dead because if that's what it took to fulfill God's promises, God was going to do that. But Abraham knew that he was going to do what he said. Abraham trusted God. He was going to fulfill his promise. And in Genesis 22, we hear that the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven. The Lord tells uh, Abraham in response to his successful testing, he says, by myself, I have sworn. I have sworn. I'm going to greatly multiply your descendants. I'm going to greatly bless you. And so he swore it with an oath, a promise sealed with an oath, as Hebrews 6 tells us. So verse 73 then speaks of this absolutely certain guaranteed promise that God made to Abraham, their father. What is involved in this oath? Well, a great nation that grew to be great in number, as Deuteronomy 7 indicated, had already taken place even by the time they entered the promised land. Uh, also, the land 
the land of promise. For example, when Israel would go into exile in Leviticus 26, verse 40 through 42, it says this. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me. I was also acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well and I will remember the land. This is not a negotiable part of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise to Abraham our father includes Israel living in the land as promised. This is part of what Zacharias is thinking when they says, he says he's going to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Well, they were dwelling in the land in large part, although Israel was also scattered to some degree in the diaspora. But he, he says this is not the, the final fulfillment of this because Rome rules over us. We don't even possess our own land. We're living here, but it's not ours. But he says, you're going to remember your holy covenant. A great people living in the land. And then the other component of the Abrahamic promise and oath was a blessing. They were not greatly blessed at this time. They were captives. They were in their sins. They were unrepentant. They needed to turn their hearts to the Lord. But there was a blessing that would come to the, Abraham, uh, to the Abrahamic descendants and a blessing that would come through them. Look over with me, if you will, in Romans chapter 11. We'll see what happens when God fulfills this, this promise. The way that he discusses this. In Romans 11, he says, uh, starting in verse 11, about Israel and their unbelief in his own day, Paul, uh, having being a preacher of Christ, Christ has come, Christ has ascended to heaven, Israel didn't respond by faith for the most part. And he, say that, he says, uh, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, is their rejection of Christ the final straw for them as a nation? And he says, God forbid, may it never be. But there's something else going on. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. The Gentiles, those outside the nation of Israel, have received the message of salvation to bring Israel to jealousy so that they would say, Oh no, we're missing the boat. We've got to get, we've got to get with it. We need to repent. We need to turn to this Christ. And so he then says this about what will happen. He, he's looking forward. He says, look. The situation now is the Jews reject Jesus and the Gentiles are being saved. Okay, so let's just take that as that's the current situation. Now imagine what's going to happen when God decides to bless Israel and then bless the nations through Israel. Listen to what he, how he puts this, verse 12. Now if their transgression, if Israel's transgression or their sin is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles... How much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, if Israel is not believing right now, how much more of a blessing are they going to be to the world according to the promise to Abraham when they do believe? He says, verse 13, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection 
is the reconciliation of the world, that is the gospel going to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so here Paul has an understanding of Israel's purpose, which is not to be the sum total of all of the nations of the earth, or rather the sum total of all believers everywhere at all time. Israel is to be blessed, the descendants of Abraham, but they are also to be a vessel of blessing to others. All of this, then, is what is in view when Zacharias prophesies that the promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. They are going to bring blessing. They are going to be blessed, and then they are going to bring a blessing by virtue of being a holy nation. This is always God's purpose for them. Exodus 19, you are going to be in the midst of the earth a holy nation, a people for my possession. You are going to mediate my blessing. A kingdom of priests is what you're going to be. Israel was never supposed to be the cul-de-sac where things end. It was supposed to be a pass-through of God's blessing to the earth. But they can only be that if they are what they need to be. We have example after example of how they completely failed to do this, typified maybe most clearly in uh, the choice of Jonah to say, I hate that other nation. I'm not going to go bring your blessing there. Let them die. And God had to override Jonah's desires not to go to Nineveh. And he sent him there and basically forced him there to show that God is gracious and compassionate. God is kind. This is the way he wants to use his people This is the way, by the way, he wants to use us as well. We are not to be the place where the gospel comes and stops. It should go through us and out to others. And so this promise, the nation, the great nation, the land, a blessing to and through Israel, all of this is going to be fulfilled. Um, In order to do this, by the way, he's going to have to change the people because Israel is in no condition, not only then, but even in our own day, to be able to do this. We ought not to do as some Christians, um, perhaps well-meaning, but nonetheless mistakenly do, which is to give a free pass to everything that uh, modern Jews or Israel do on the basis of their special status before God as a nation. This is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches us that they need to repent where they have sinned, and they need to embrace Christ where they have not done that. And there is no promised blessing for them as a nation while they are rebelling against God. So we need to recognize that. And this is what John came to do, to prepare the hearts of the people to receive their Lord. This is why he's going to preach a baptism of what? Repentance. Repentance. So here, Zechariah says, God is going to remember his holy covenant. What's this going to bring about? Verse 74, blissful worship, resulting in blissful worship. To be honest, I struggled coming up with a way to describe this. Blissful kind of seems to be a little bit, um, uh, just doesn't capture the whole picture, but we'll give it a shot. Verse 74 says, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Christians or believers in Christ, those who trust in God, want to serve God. But there are two ways that God is spoken of being served here one is without fear and the other is in holiness and righteousness Um, this is a desire that God's people have they want to serve him without fear but it isn't just a desire we have this is a desire God has he wants Christians to be able to serve him without fear this is his end promise to them 
uh, the situation where someone would be afraid of what someone would think about them or do to them because of their worship of Christ is really a temporary situation that only takes place in a world that is not ruled actively and directly by God. It's, a, it's an anomaly. It's an exception to what will be the rule forever one day. God promises things like this, Ezekiel 34, 28, about Israel. They will no longer be a prey to the nations. The beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. Doesn't that sound amazing? Not having to be afraid of anything. You don't have to lock your doors. You don't have to read the news and say, is there going to be a war sometime in the future? You don't have to think somebody's going to get on to me for believing in Christ or having this or that moral stand. This is what God intends to do. He hasn't done that for us yet, but he intends to do that. And Israel had this promise. And of course, anyone that belongs to Christ will one day be freed from all of their oppressors. What an amazing thing. But it's not just freedom from fear that is in view. It is freedom with a purpose. Daryl Bach puts it this way. He says, uh, the expectation of the devout for a political and spiritual rescue is not merely because of a pragmatic desire to be politically free, but also because of a wish to serve God. Uh, a lot of us and a lot of people around us want to be free. But we need to ask ourselves, why, why do we want to be free? Why do we want to be free? Why do we want to be free from pain, from oppression, from restrictions, uh, from opposition. Why? Well, too often when people want to be free, it's so that they can do what they want to do. They want autonomy. People constrain them. People feel oppressive to them. You're not letting me do what I want. Zacharias sets before us a better paradigm. He says, we should want to be free so that we can serve God most fully. And so I would ask you to consider whether in the freedoms that you have, you are taking advantage of those, not for your own self-indulgence, but so that you can most fully serve God, to live a life of service to him. Some people use their freedom for careless speech, selfish indulgence, or even personal glory and pursuits. But we ought to be driven by a desire to serve God. 1 Corinthians 7.22 says that he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman, but likewise he who was called while free is Christ's slave. This is who we are. We ought to serve him in our free state. But it isn't just in freedom from fear that this service will uh, be given and will happen. He says in verse 75, there is a type of service that we ought to render, which is in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It is good to want to serve God. It is good. Ministry is good. Serving God is good. Worshiping God is good. Doing what God said in certain things is good. But we don't just serve God the way we want, and we don't serve God without a concern for righteousness. Here he says we would serve him in holiness and righteousness. That is to say God cares how you serve him. And God cares how you act while you serve him. We shouldn't just be those who say we serve Christ. We love Christ. We do what Christ says. We serve in the church or we worship him. But then our lives have nothing to do with that. 
we should serve him in holiness and righteousness. This is what God visited his people Israel to do. Well, if then verses 68 through 75 is about what God uh, signified that he is doing for Israel as a nation with whatever ramifications there are for other people, but for them as a nation and for his righteous people among them as a nation. Uh, Verses 76 through 79 concerns how God will use John to bring about those blessings and specifically as the forerunner for the mediator, Jesus Christ. And so John serves additionally. His role is to uh, bring about the preparation for the Messiah. The preparation for the Messiah. So the significance of John's birth is not just that he's going to redeem Israel, but he is going to do so through a certain individual person. He is the horn of salvation in verse 69, but now it's more clearly laid out even here more expansively. He says, uh, first of all, he speaks of John's role as a prophet. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Having spoken in general terms about what God is doing for Israel, he now turns to his son and announces to his uh, very young son, who probably can't even understand what he's saying, uh, you, son, are going to do this and to be this. And you notice the shift. No longer is he speaking about what he has done, but he is speaking about what he will do in the future. And he says, you, son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. In addition to being named John, he's going to have a title or at least an office, a prophet of the Most High. We saw in verse 32 that Jesus is the son of the Most High. John doesn't rank that high on the scale, but he is still high up. He is the prophet of the Most High. John is God's prophet. But we also find here John's role, not just as one who speaks in general for God, but he is the forerunner of the Lord. John's role as the forerunner of the Lord. And so he says in verse 76, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. A reference here to the Old Testament promise of Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Now, it's important that we understand here, uh, we've already heard in John chapter 1, excuse me, Luke chapter 1, that there was a promise about John early when uh, Gabriel was talking to him that John would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, verse 17. He will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah. There was an Old Testament promise that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, John functioned as an Elijah-like kind of person, such that someone who responded to his message would basically get all the benefits, as if Elijah himself had come to prepare the way for the Lord, because John came before Jesus in the same way. And so even though he's not literally Elijah the prophet, he did go before the Lord in the same way at what turned out to be Jesus' first coming. Um, The point in this is that the Lord doesn't suddenly come to people as they are. The point is that he sent someone to prepare people for when he comes. And this is what he's doing here. He is going before the Lord to prepare his ways. The Lord is coming, but he says, look, we need to get uh, a sort of not quite red carpet rolled out, but we need to make sure that people are ready. We need to make sure that they're prepared. You know, make sure that I don't have to get there and kind of wait around, you know, when is everybody going to get ready? But here, when he shows up, He wants the people to be ready for him. 
So John is sent before the Lord, as we know it from later revelation, the Lord Jesus himself, to prepare the hearts of the people for him. And this is what he says. What is he going to do? Well, he's going to prepare his ways. Verse 76, he's going to prepare his ways. He's going to clear the way for the Lord to come. And then it says he is going to bring the knowledge of salvation. And this is a key point that we need to focus on here for the last part of our time together. He is going to bring to his people the knowledge of salvation. Notice here a few things about this. First of all, salvation does not just come automatically to the people. God doesn't just simply swoop in and save. He does so through knowledge, through a message, bringing about content that can be understood that is what produces salvation. Some years later, the Apostle Paul was preaching in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch to some Jews and said something to this effect. In Acts 13, 26, he said, Brethren, son of Abraham's family, those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Again, the point is God doesn't just simply come and do salvation. Salvation demands knowing something and responding to something. And we need to be careful that we don't fool ourselves, but kind of by just speaking in generalities about what God has done. You know, oh, God came down and saved us. Didn't it, isn't it great that he saved us? You know, God is the Savior or our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just always want to ask, who is the our we're talking about here? Who, who's involved in this first person plural? Who are we talking about? Are, are you saying you identify with him? Or did he kind of just do this vaguely and broadly for all people you know, without some kind of distinction. Because it is true that God came down and saved us, and he is our Savior, and uh, God is the Savior. These things are true, but the question is, have you personally appropriated them? Are you in the we? Are you in the us? Are you in the our? Have you responded by faith? Do you have the knowledge of salvation, and have you responded to that knowledge by actually believing and repenting? We'll hear more about this as we go through Luke. But salvation is God's work indeed, but it only comes through understanding the message and responding in a proper way. Don't listen to certain theologians who want to sort of downplay the nature of personal response to the gospel by saying, oh, no, no, it's just kind of about God acting in history. God is just getting involved in the situation and showing that he cares and showing that he's coming down and making a people. Well, he's doing all those things, but how does he do so? You've got to believe the gospel. People have to actually respond. There's no one who gets into the community of God and experiences the benefits of his salvation without actually doing something in response. So we need to understand that salvation comes only through knowledge. Well, what is involved in this knowledge? This involves the means of salvation. Notice verse 77, he does so by the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. This is how God saves. And this is the foundational experiential component of receiving salvation. Um, In other words, to be saved consists not completely, but first and foremost of receiving the forgiveness of sins. There is nothing more important than having your sins forgiven. Nothing. If your sins are not forgiven, then there is no problem that you have to fix with more urgency. There is no solution that you can come up with to any problem that will ultimately change your fundamental state before God. 
We are all guilty before God, and we all need our sins forgiven. And if you don't have them forgiven, then you have nothing, whatever else you have. This is the basis for salvation. In fact, this is the basis for the entire fulfillment of the new covenant that God promised. He says in Jeremiah 31, 34, that uh, the basis of all of it is, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so as God is going to fulfill this promise to Abraham, he does so by bringing a ruler, yes, through his Davidic covenant. But he also does so on the basis of another covenant, the new covenant, which is founded in the forgiveness of sins and giving a new heart to people. So here he says, He's going to give his people the knowledge of salvation by this crucial component of the forgiveness of their sins. Again, this is at the heart of the message of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is it. This is everything. Are your sins forgiven? This is the whole message. And Acts 10, 23 says of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him, that is in Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins. John's message tells us God is going to visit. He's going to bring from darkness to light. Sunrise on high will visit us. The shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Uh, because of the tender mercy of our God and God's compassion is abundant upon those who he cares for. The way that we receive it, though, is through having our sins forgiven. And you need to look at yourself and say, is this the case? Do I know that my sins are forgiven? Have I trusted Christ? Have I responded in this way? And then, am I doing what Jesus says at the end of Luke, which is to make sure that the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name throughout all the world? Well, John's birth signified one more thing, which is the beginning of a special life. Verse 80, the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We'll hear more about John as we go when he shows up at his public appearance to Israel in chapter 3. But John, just as he will later go before Jesus in his ministry as an adult, has gone before Jesus in his birth. And next time we're together, we will hear about the birth of none other than the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are so kind and gracious to give us the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And may we be sure that we have appropriated that message by faith, that we have received the forgiveness of sins that you so graciously give us. We praise you for your kindness and salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.